6640. Your future lies in 6640. 66 books by 40 authors, and yet we now discover it's an integrated message system from outside our time domain. Welcome to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher is Chuck Missler, connecting the Bible to your life and the world around you. In today's study, Chuck continues his teaching on the book of 1 John, chapter 3. Now, let's now shift to a three-dimensional world. We're a group of disciples in an upper room. The room has a floor, a ceiling, and four walls. It's a six-sided figure, right? Floor, ceiling, four walls. All the doors and windows are locked. And we get a visitor who shows up. Well, he's a spirit. No, he isn't. He challenges that. Handle me and see. A spirit doesn't have flesh and bones as you see me have. And yet, so he's tangible, palpable. And yet, he can enter and leave a six-sided space without penetrating any of the six sides. See, he's hyperdimensional. Now, see, we, need, we do well to get a little bit of perspective of what we call reality. And I'll represent us by the Vitruvian man of uh, da Vinci just idiomatically here. And I want to talk about size. Larger than us or smaller than us? Larger going to the right, smaller going to the left here, okay? In terms of largeness, see, there's, we discovered there's, an elusive, there's a concept of mathematics that we cannot find physically. That's infinity. On the large size, we discover that in the sense of largeness, the universe is finite. The great discovery of 20th century science is that our, from astronomy and physics and so forth, that our universe is not infinite. It's very big and maybe expanding, but it's finite. That's staggering its implication. That's why it had a beginning, and that gives rise to the conjectures called Big Bang theories and what have you. Okay, that is something we can sort of deal with. Let's go the other way. Let's talk, let's talk about smallness. If we go to smallness here, that's the field of quantum physics, subatomic particles. And we discover something very disturbing, that there's a limit to smallness, that length, mass, energy, and time are made up of indivisible units called quanta. If you split one of those, it loses locality. It's suddenly everywhere at one time. What's that mean? Well, turn, let's talk a little bit about that. You've all seen the little model of an atom in your, in your books. You have a nucleus, and you have an electron spinning. That's one way to represent it, of course. We call it a nucleus, and we have an electron. Take the simplest atom we know, a hydrogen atom, right? We're together so far. This is obviously not to scale. We know that the atom is about 10 to the minus 8 centimeters. Point zero 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 eight zeros, you know, one centimeter. Nucleus is even much, much uh, smaller than that. The ratio of the atom to its nucleus is one part, uh, I'll put it the other way around, is that the nucleus is one part in 10 to the fifth. What does all that mean? Well, the if, you made the, if you want to make a model of this and you make, use a golf ball for the nucleus, the electron will be three miles away. So if you're going to build one of these in your garage, you better... You got a problem, okay? 
just a model of it. The point I want you to get across is that the ratio of the, the size of the golf ball to the total is one part in 100,000. We're together so far? Just broad terms here? Okay. But that ratio is a linear relationship, right? To get an area, you have to square it. To get a volume, you have to cube it. So the volumetric ratio of this atom is 10 to the 5th cubed, or saying it another way, 10 to the 15th. Let me, let me uh, point out that that ratio is the same ratio as one second has to 30 million years. We're dealing with, that's why scientists use these exponential, that's a way of representing very large numbers. I'm, ra I'm, I'm creating a, a this, the ratio of the nucleus to the atom is the same ratio as one second has to 30 million years. What does that mean? I have a, a podium up here. You say, that's solid, okay? And I say, this is solid. And Gary says, no, it isn't. It doesn't even exist there. Is it, is it, it's all empty space. He is more correct than I am by the same ratio. It's more like empty space than it is solid by a ratio of one second to 30 million years. It's empty. It's an illusion. In fact, it's an electrical simulation. Really. So let's, go, let's talk about this another way. If I take a, a, a line, I can cut that in half, right? No problem. I can take the half of that, and I can cut it in half, right? Now, you would think I could do that forever. Take the half and, and, and so forth. Go smaller and smaller. You'd think I could do that at least conceptually forever. No, it turns out I can't. When I get down to 10 to the minus 33 centimeters and attempt to cut that in half, it loses a property called by physicists locality. We now discover and have proven in the laboratory that every photon in the universe knows exactly what every other photon is exhibiting. They're linked in a strange way. And that's, that, lead, that leads to this, uh, that they lose locality. There's a Planck length of 33 centimeters, a Planck time and 10 to the minus 43 seconds. I think that's what a twinkle of an eye is, by the way. Not a blink, a twinkle. Anyway, uh, it's the speed of light going through that small... Anyway, so if we take this thing, what we've said, on the large size, we know we have finite, finiteness. On the small size, we have finiteness. In other words, there's nothing infinitely small and nothing infinitely large. We're, we find ourselves in a reality that is simulated. It isn't a real reality. And uh, now, if you, uh, we are in a digital simulation, and that discovery is very disturbing. In the Scientific American, in June of 2005, they had an article which concludes that our universe is but a shadow of a larger reality. That's their words, not mine. But that's exactly what the Bible has been saying all along. Now, a photograph is a two-dimensional representation of a three-dimensional object. If I give you a picture of Gary, you'll recognize him in the picture, but it's still a representation, a two-dimensional representation of a three-dimensional object. You say, well, I can get a hologram. That's like a window into a three-dimensional space. Well, we're getting somewhere here. In holography, we take a piece of photograph, we illuminate the photograph with a laser, and we take a reference beam and reflect it off that and record the way those two beams interfere. And what we gain on that 
thing is a is the collection of the interference patterns of the direct light and the reflected light. And when you look at it in, in regular light, it looks like a darkroom mistake. It's a foggy piece of film. When you illuminate it with a laser that created it, it becomes a window, a three-dimensional. It's actually a Fourier transform of that image. And it's like a window in, uh, 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 in, through space. And depending what you, which way you look at it, you're looking into a three-dimensional space. But even that, even a hologram, is a th- is a representation three dimension a representation of a three dimensional space. But now let's go having all that palaver behind you. Let's take a look at First John three two one more time carefully. Beloved, now are we the sons of God, and it doth not yet appear what we shall be. But we know that when He, who's that He, Jesus, when He shall appear, we shall be like Him. How do we know that? Before, Because we will see Him as He is. Now, we don't know how many dimensions Jesus enjoys right now. We know that it's more than 11 because that's the only way He could mathematically get in and out of a six-sided sphere. That's another... That's, that's just a property that he, appara- he has at least that, maybe much more. But here's the point. Whatever He enjoys, we will be like Him. Why? Because we're going to see him as he is. We're not going to see a three-dimensional representation of a four-dimensional object. We're not going to see a ten-dimensional representation of an eleven-dimensional object. No. Whatever whatever he enjoys, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. We're going to apparently enjoy the same dimensionality. Wow is right. And that's... uh, what uh, Paul says in uh, Romans, the redemption of our body, the glorification. We have no grasp of what that all means, but we're getting a glimpse of it here through John's epistle. That when he shall appear, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. Wow. Okay, moving on. Every man that hath this hope in him does what? Coasts, puts his feet on the desk and says, enough. no, no, every man that hath this hope in him purifieth himself, even as he is pure. This is a call to holy living. Apostle is not there. He tells us that what we should be, in view of his imminent return, we should keep ourselves clean. Remember the Christian's bar of soap, 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and what? Cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We stay clean by applying that. All this is to remind us of the Father's love. He wants us to live with Him every day. Salvation from start to finish is an expression of the love of God. The cross, absolutely. The resurrection, validating it all and opening the door to a a, a future we have probably no ability to fully comprehend. An unbeliever who sins is a creature sinning against his Creator. A Christian who sins is a child sinning against his Father. Do children do that? Yes. But not with impunity. Okay, so that's the first three verses. Let's move to the next few. God the Son died for us. That's the reason we look for a holy life. Whosoever commits sin transgresses also the law, for sin is the transgression of the law. And we know that He was manifested to take away our sins, and in Him is no sin. Manifest, we're talking about here, now turns from, uh, from the future appearing of the Lord Jesus to His past appearing 
He's looking back here. The manifest means, meaning to appear. Whosoever abideth in him sinneth not. Whosoever sinneth hath not seen him, neither known him. And John gives us two reasons why Jesus came and died. To take away our sins and to destroy the works of the devil. He's going to talk about that forthcoming here, the next group of things. A child, for a God, child of God to sin indicates that he does not understand or appreciate what Jesus did for him on the cross. We'll talk more about that before we're through here. Every great personality of the Bible has sinned one time or another. Abraham lied about his wife twice. Moses lost his temper and disobeyed God. Didn't inherit. By the way, can you lose your inheritance? Yes, you can. Can't lose your salvation. Can't lose your inheritance. Ask Reuben about that. Ask Esau about that. Ask Moses about that. He didn't, after 120 years, he, did, he blew it too. But he's got another chance in Revelation 11, I think. Anyway, David had his affair with Bathsheba and, of course, even resorted to murder. We all know the story. Poor David. Throughout eternity, everybody is going to know his story, right? <laughs> Peter denied the Lord three times. All right. But sin was not settled in the lives of these men. It was an incident in their lives, totally contrary to their normal lives totally contrary to their normal habits. When they sinned, they admitted it, repented of it, and asked God to forgive them. The unsaved person, even if he professes to be a Christian but is, un is a counterfeit, lives a life of habitual sin, especially the sin of unbelief. It is the normal thing in his life. In other words, it's characteristic of him. Not an incident, it's characteristic. Ephesians talks about this. Ephesians chapter 2, first three verses. And you hath he quickened who were dead in trespasses and sins, wherein in time past ye walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now worketh in the children of disobedience, among whom also we all had our behavior. The word conversation in those days meant, you know, is what we would use the term behavior. In times past, in the lust of your flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature the children of wrath, even as others. Ooh. See, the unbeliever has no divine resources to drop on. His profession of faith is not real. This is the distinction that is in view here in the first ten verses of this chapter. A true believer does not live in a habitual sin. He may commit sin, an occasional wrong act, but he will not practice sin. That is, means making a habit of it. The difference is that a true Christian knows God. A counterfeit Christian may talk about God and get involved in religious activities, but he does not really know God. A true Christian lives a life of obedience. He does not practice sin. And Christ appeared in order to take away all our sins. Now, biblical definitions of sin, boy, this is a big subject. Whatsoever is not of faith is sin, Romans tells us. The thought of foolishness is sin. Boy, am I guilty. In a lot of ways, actually. Therefore, to him that knoweth to do good and doeth it not, to him it is sin, James 4. All unrighteousness is sin, 1 John 5. But here... John defines sin simply as lawlessness. The emphasis is not on sins, plural, but on sin, singular. Sins are fruit. Sin is the root. Different use of the term, if you will. The, 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 the singular, and this is one of those, this is a synecdoche, where the singular is the general for the whole category. God's love does not mean he does, has no rules or regulations for his family. That's not the law. It's a different issue altogether here. Hereby we do know that we know him if we keep his commandments. First John 2. That was last time. 
And whatsoever we ask, we receive of him because we keep his commandments and do those things which are pleasing in his sight. By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and keep his commandments. And he's going to hit that in our fifth chapter when we get to it. God's children are not in bondage to the Old Testament law, for Christ has made us free and has given us liberty. Sin is basically a matter of the will. For us to assert our will against God's will is rebellion, and rebellion is the root of sin. The very essence of sin is lawlessness. The whole work of the cross is denied when a professed Christian practiced deliberate sin. This is one reason why Paul calls such people the enemies of the cross of Christ, Philippians 3. Ooh. Little children, there's a technia term, that, that, that a term of endearment. Let no man deceive you. He that doeth righteousness is righteous, even as he is righteous. He that committeth sin is of the devil. For the devil sinneth from the beginning. For this purpose the Son of God is, was manifested, that he might destroy the works of the devil. Now we've got a little interesting problem here. The word destroy may be a little misleading. Destroy does not mean annihilate. Satan is certainly still at work today. Destroy here means to render inoperative, to rob of power. A little different tone, but it's important. Jesus compares this world to a palace that contains many valuable goods. A strong man is guarding the place. That's his idioms in Luke 11. Every time a lost sinner is won to Christ, more of Satan's spoils are taken from him, in effect, is the idiom. Christ appeared in order to destroy the works of the devil. If a man knows God, he will obey God. If he belongs to the devil, he will obey the devil. John accepts the reality of a personal devil here. Many different names are used in Scripture. Satan, of course, means adversary. Devil means accuser. Abaddon or Polyon means destroyer. Prince of this world. Dragon, the red dragon, Revelation 12, etc. What's his chief activity? To oppose Christ and God's people. Satan is not eternal. Satan is a rebel. Christ is the obedient Son of God, even to the death of the cross. Christ is God, but was willing to become a servant. Satan was a servant who wanted to become God. Christ was born of a woman so that you and I could be born again. He humbled himself so that we could be lifted up. He became a servant so that we could be made joint heirs with him. We have no capacity to imagine what that means. He suffered rejection so that we could become his friends. He denied himself so that we could freely receive all things. He gave himself so that he could bless us in every way. Wow. Can't get over that. Okay. Then the other reason we have a holy life is that the Holy Spirit lives in us. Wow. Whosoever is born of God doth not commit sin, for his seed remaineth in him. For he cannot sin because he is born of God. His seed remaineth in him. No one of born of God practices sin. He cannot practice sin because he is born of God. Why? Because he has a new nature within him. It's that new nature that he's talking about here. A new nature cannot sin. John calls this new nature God's seed. A child of God is given a new nature, and that new nature does not and will not commit sin. The reason that the prodigal son could not stay in the pig pen was that he was not a pig. Okay? He was the son of the father, and he belonged to the father's house. If you are a child of God, you will want to be in the father's house, and you will long for it. Abide is one of John's favorite words. It is this abiding, communion. Koinonia is the Greek term. 
that keeps us from deliberately disobeying God's Word. There's more in the death of Christ on the cross than simply our salvation from judgment. As wonderful as that is, through His death, Christ broke the power of, this, of the sin principle in our lives. Romans 6 to 8, those chapters 6 through 8, is this identification with Christ in His death and resurrection. Christ not only died for me, I died with Christ. Now I can yield myself to Him, and sin will not have dominion over me. And that's what we're talking about. There are three tenses of being saved. Have been saved, past tense, from the penalty of sin. That's positional. Called justification. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 deals with that. You are being saved, present tense. That's from the power of sin, operationally, by the Holy Spirit, moment by moment. Called sanctification. Romans 6. Shall be saved, that's future tense, from the presence of sin, called the redemption of our body. Wow. Well, we talked about that earlier. Okay. When a person receives Christ as a Savior, tremendous spiritual changes take place in him. He is given a new standing before God, being accepted as righteous in God's sight. This new standing is called justification. It, will, it never expires and is never lost. The new Christian is also given a new position. He's set apart for God's own purposes to live for His glory. This new position is called sanctification. That's what sanctify means, to be set apart. And has a way of changing from day to day. You should be growing. There should be some improvement. You have two natures in you then. You can't cast out flesh. It's still there. You have two natures. Which one are you feeding the most? Oh. Did you, have to, did you know you have a spiritual hygiene as well as a physical hygiene? Physical man needs cleansing. So does the inner man. That's, remember the Christian's bar of soap when we talk about 1 John 1, uh, 1, 1.9. Unconfessed sins are the first step in what the Bible calls backsliding. Sin is like a virus. Instead of fighting its invasion, we yield to it. Carried away, enticed, bait and hooked, trapped. The end is death, of course. James 1 deals with that. The inner man also needs food and cleansing. The inner man does. He also needs exercise. That includes exercising. Not defrauding the body of Christ with your spiritual gift. If you have a spiritual gift and aren't exercising it, you are defrauding the body. In this the children of God are manifest, and the children of the devil. Whosoever doeth not righteousness is not of God, neither he that loveth not his brother. So yielding to sin is the distinguishing mark of a child of the devil. They profess or claim one thing, but practice uh, another. Satan is a liar and the father of lies. We're going to see John 8.44 referred to a number of times as we go proceed through this. He that saith, I know him, and keepeth not his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. False teachers in John's day taught that a Christian did not have to worry about sin because only the body sinned. And what the body did in no way affected the spirit. Weird ideas. Some of them went so far as to teach that sin is natural to the body because of the body of sinful. The New Testament exposes the foolishness of such excuses for sin. The old nature is not the body. The body itself is neutral. It can be used either by the old sinful nature or by the new divine nature. How does a child of God go about overcoming the desire of the old sin nature? By beginning each day, yielding his body to God as a living sacrifice. Romans chapter 12, verse 1 and 2 is your keywords. Are, you, are your keywords. And uh, if you want to understand how to do that in practical terms, I encourage you to take a look 
at my wife's book called Be Ye Transformed. Wrote a whole book on Romans 12, 1 and 2, the practical uh, techniques to really do that. And she does. Thy word have I hidden my heart, the psalmist says, that I might not sin against thee. Scripture memory has a place in your spiritual hygiene. People say, Chuck, why do you use the King James? Well, for a number of reasons. Everyone has their problems. The King James are well known, well documented. But I do it for another reason everybody overlooks. When I do my memory work, I want to do it in a, ver- in a version that's going to be around 20 years from now. These others come and go. I'm on the review committee for the International Standard Version Bible. And it's pretty, I'm getting quite impressed with it. And we may start using that in many things. But I'm glad that my memory work for the last 60 years has been in the King James because it's still here. I'm glad I didn't get picked up on the RSV back then. Anyway, okay. If he does sin, he must instantly confess to God and claim forgiveness, but it is not necessary for him to sin. There hath no temptation taken you but such as is common to man. But God is faithful, who will not suffer you to be tempted above that ye are able, but will with the temptation also make a way to escape that ye may be able to bear it. 1 Corinthians 10.13. You ought to add that to your memory group. That's a great one. That's a great comfort, a great reminder. That's your escape clause when you're under pressure. The true Christian also loves other Christians. Oh boy, I knew that was a tough one here. These words are not written that you and I might check on other people. They were given so that we might examine ourselves. Oh, do I have the divine nature within me or am I merely pretending to be a Christian? These are little self-test questions to think about. Do I cultivate this divine nature by daily Bible reading and prayer? Do you? Think about it. Has any unconfessed sin defiled my inner man? Is a question we should ask every morning. Am I willing to confess and forsake it? Oh, there's the rub. I mean, I got to quit. Oh. You've been listening to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher was Chuck Missler, teaching through the books of 123 John. Download the new K-House TV app to access an ever-growing collection of free resources. Visit the Apple or Android app store or search K-House TV on your Roku or Fire TV streaming device. Thank you for listening to 6640 and for your continued prayerful support of this ministry. Until next time, as we continue this series, may God bless you with the knowledge of His Son, Jesus Christ, as you study His Word.